Hey everyone, before we start on this episode, we wanted to let you know that you can watch our Catalog and Cocktails episode live with us every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Central via Zoom. Check the link in our bio for more information, and we hope you join us in the discussion in real time. Now, let's get back to the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome, welcome. It's Wednesday, and it's time for Catalog and Cocktails. It's our weekly live hangout and podcast that is an honest, no BS, non-salesy conversation about enterprise data management with tasty beverages in hand. I'm Tim Gasper, longtime data nerd and product guy at data.world, and joined by Juan. Hello, Tim. Happy Wednesday, and how are you doing, my friend? I am doing great. I am enjoying my beverage and I'm ready to talk about data. How about you? I'm, I'm excited to be here. Always, as I say, the, the pause in the middle of the week and have an honest, no BS conversation about data. And I'm really excited that we're going to be able to, that we're being joined by my friend, Ashley Faith. Ashley is a director of Knowledge Graph at EBSCO and is somebody who I say that we can just sit down and just talk for hours and, and we Dang. won't get bored. Um, and actually, we've never met in real life face to face. Hopefully that ends up that was going to happen soon. But Ashley, great to have you here. Hey, thank you for having me. You are both so fun. When you asked me to do this, I'm like, why wouldn't I do this? This is this is a highlight of the week. <laughs> well, that's awesome. And also to shout out, Ashley, you have your own YouTube channel. You please uh, pitch that. I, I do. Um, it's not connected to my day job at EBSCO. It is really just a place for, uh, I fondly say data nerds. So we have fun. We do metadata showdowns between different websites and different companies. Uh, do a little bit of teaching about Knowledge Graph uh, and how to pitch it to your stakeholders. Lots of things. So if you want to go check it out, it is free on YouTube. Cool. So uh, how, how do they find you on YouTube? Oh, it's just my name, Ashley Faith, and you'll be able to find me. Cool. So just as a reminder for our podcast listeners, uh, we record Catalog and Cocktails live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Central. Everyone's invited. Uh, we stop the recording 30 minutes in uh, and uh, we start the after party and just have the discussion live with all the attendees who are here. Uh, you can also join our Slack community. That's where we'll, everybody's on the Slack community. We'll kind of get an inside info on what's the next topics, on what are the takeaways, and we can continue the discussion over there. So catalog and cocktails. So let's start with our cocktails. What is everybody drinking today? You guys start first. I'm, I'm just doing a classic gin and tonic. Hendrix, one of my favorite. And instead of putting a lime, I put an orange. That's it nice. today. <laughs> Nice. Simple and straightforward. What, what about you, I, Ashley? What are you drinking? I have been on so many of these. I thought I had to do something very strange. So uh, New England is known for mead. So I actually have a honey green tea mead for tonight. Huh. Very tasty. That is unique. Also, and <laughs> it kind of makes you, because of the green tea and some of the things, it kind of makes me not sleepy too, which is what I need for this. I need to be energized for you to keep up with you. <laughs> that is so cool. I love that idea of that drink. I, I love green tea and I usually just put honey in my tea, mm -hmm. but hey, mead, it's mead? coming back. <laughs> what about you, Tim? I am drinking uh, just some bourbon with key lime and blood orange. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's an interesting. That's delicious. Mix. All right. So what are we going to be toasting for? 
Oh my goodness. I don't know. I'm, we, I'm, I'm, I'm toasting to, to, uh, to the weekend, which can't come soon enough, man. You know, after doing a long vacation in December and then like January, January is tough. I don't know about you guys. <laughs> no, I, I, I think for, for, for me, it's just, it's, it's been a blur. Like what is a vacation nowadays? Like, like nah, <laughs> I'm just gonna, I'm gonna just keep chugging along, but yeah. How about you, Ashley? What are you going to be cheering for? toasting here uh i i am toasting for it's gonna sound strange but i do love the snow and we haven't had any snow in new england where i am located right now and today we actually got some snow so i'm i'm toasting to that because i can go do fun things in the snow soon oh cool. that is awesome cheers well, to- cheers everybody i'm toasting for every everybody who is uh, listening to us so we're really excited about all the listeners that we're getting so thank you for everybody and just don't forget to uh, rate and uh and review and subscribe and like and all that stuff. So we had one warm-up question for us today, which is, so who's been starting to play chess because of the Queen's Gambit? And who's actually watching Queen's Gambit and all that stuff? I am. You're watching Queen's Gambit? And Juan, are you I watching am. Queen's Gambit? My wife was watching it, and I was kind of watching a little bit with it, and but not really. But I kind of got the gist of it, but um, I'm not playing chess because of it. <laughs> do do you like it, Ashley? Is it good? Yeah, I mean, I played chess not seriously with my dad. It was like our bonding moment, you know, when I was a little kid. And so to see it come back and be kind of like sexy again is, is kind of cool. Uh, it's an interesting show. There's very strange things in it, though, but I liked it. Well, post in the chat. Tell us where you're coming from. What are you drinking? Uh, what are you toasting for? And if you've watched The Queen's Gambit, then if you're playing chess because of it. So, but all right, let's go dive and chat some data. But more about more, let's chat about this whole notion of uh, do you need a therapy session because of the data problems? I like when we were chatting before. I think that was one of the topics that you're saying. So, um, let's just kick it off Ashley I mean I really don't script this stuff and I just know you have tons of stuff in your head and I, I'm not I'm like there's no question here like what yeah what are you thinking right now <clears throat> well you know I think that when you get into data governance specifically when you're a data officer and you're just tasked with um reining things in so to speak uh some people can take it overboard Um, And I think some people take it very seriously. But one thing that I have learned very early on in my career was, you know, doing a lot of studies on this as well, about 40% increase in your user's satisfaction of their search in your data catalog. It increases when you actually talk to them (laughs) and you, you ask them about how do you feel? How would you find this this content and this information. It sounds a little silly. I mean, every time I do it, I really do feel like I'm putting them on a therapy couch, but it, you know, it's just a a no BS. Let me listen to you understand how your, you know, mental model is, is functioning on, on this content. And it really helps. And, you know, I don't want to, you know, go into it maybe right this second, but there, there's definitely ways that you can use knowledge graphs to help you with that. But so before we go into that, mm-hmm. first of all, I'm like, wait, how is that going to scale? Shouldn't this all be automated and all that? I mean, I mean, I, I, I'm with you on this, right? But I think if we play devil's advocate and what a lot of people are, are going to be thinking is like, wait, you can't, you, you can't expect to go get everybody into, into therapy and they're all going to say yes. And we're going to go be able to do this quickly because we need a, I got to catalog all this stuff and so forth. Right. So what, how is that argument? Like, and, 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 yeah. to whom? and who do you have to convince? 
So, you know, you start with a, a select group of people that you know are, are going to support you. And usually those are the people that I do more of an ethnographic study, right? I sit down, I actually talk to them. But there are a ton of card sorting uh, technologies out there in the web. And you can do this as a massive physical thing, but you don't really need to. In fact, I am a fan of what is a reverse card sort, which is essentially not giving the, you know, the taxonomy to, to the users to pick and, and you know, do the, the traditional card sort where they move things around and they kind of show you how, how they would organize things. In fact, you just ask them, okay, here's the content. How would you tag it? And then you take those terms and then you can then generate um, a folksonomy that you can connect to your regular taxonomy. Actually, so, let me, so let's step back on, on on the card sorting, right? This is a kind of very, at least I, from my point of view, it's like the traditional kind of met, methods for doing ontology and knowledge engineering. But I'd love for you to kind of drive, give us a little bit of explanation on what yeah. is card sorting. Yeah, I'm curious about that. I'm used to like agile, like poker and things like that. And it sounds like very some kind similar. of an interesting uh, exercise. So yeah, interested it's, to learn. Yeah, it's very similar. So if you did this physically, you would literally have, index cards and a regular card sort, you can do closed, which means that you have the taxonomy, the, the terminology that you would assign to content. And you already have that. And you're just asking them, you know, put these in uh, piles according to how you think that they all relate to each other. But there's an open card sort, which is a little bit of, of that, but you have categories. You tell them, okay, here's the content that would be about HR. Here's content that you would have on product. And then they do the same thing. What a reverse card sort is you give them the content and they add their own tags to it. And a lot of people are like, Oh no, don't do that. But <laughs> there is, there is a rhyme to, to the chaos. Right. And that is as the people that understand organization, you, you don't need to push that off on your users, right? You, you just need to understand how they think, how they would talk about things. Then you take that from that card sort, you know, when they're writing down all the to topics and things that they would use to tag content, and then you organize it. And those could be um, synonyms for the official terminology. And it actually really helps when you have that in your search engine of your catalog. So this seems like the, the the person who's in charge of doing the card sorting, like managing these activities and and, and making and yeah, basically cataloging all this work. That's what as people have been listening and can guess what I'm going to say right now. It's the work of the knowledge scientist. At least that's how I see what it should be, right? Absolutely. Yep. So my, how are organizations? This is what I'm pushing. Like we need to have our companies, enterprises need to start realizing that this is an important role. Call it whatever you want to do, right? Mm -hmm. I'm calling it knowledge scientists uh, in, in different places. Like our, our, our friends at DBT, they think they use this word analytics engineering, which is all kind mm -hmm. of has that, has that whole type of same feeling. The old school term is knowledge engineering, uh, data product management. How are, how are you, how do you convince, like, how are you convincing like your peers within your own organizations, your friends and other organizations that they need to realize that this is a real or a real role we need to have? You know, the way that I've always done it, um, I have started the taxonomy and then knowledge graph uh, machine learning groups in at least three companies from scratch at this point in my career. And I'm still pretty early on. <laughs> so, 
So I think I have something going in the way that I, I present this to people. And usually what I do is I, I get the C-suite in a room or you, you get them uh, the emails, right? That have the links to uh, the card sort that you're going to do. And then you ask them to tag it. And then you show them how different every single one of them is. And then you say, okay, so imagine your filing cabinet is now the company's filing cabinet and you have your stickies on all of your files, right? Now, what if your secretary could also add stickies to that? And what if your uh, janitor could also add tags to that? And what about the head of HR? What if they could add their own stickies to that? Are they all going to be the same stickies? And the answer is no, because you've just shown them they all have different tags. And then you can say, I am not going to help you make everybody use the same words, right? This is, I think, where sometimes data governance gets a little tricky. It's, I'm going to take the words that you use to search for these things and harness them so you actually can find what you're looking for. And then you do it, right? You do a little mini use case with that, you know, here's your natural, I call it the natural language, the tags that everybody else uses. I map those to my taxonomy. I add it to the search engine, either as just a quick lookup file, just to do testing. And you can show them, oh, you, you use maglev instead of magnetic levitation train when you're doing your search for an R&D project. They both work, right? And you can show that it's better than just strings. And so when is this happening? Like, when, when do you recommend people do these kinds of things? And, you know, what, what is the trigger? Is it like a catalog purchase process that's the trigger? Is it, you know, when do, you, when do people come to realize they need therapy, right? The two main things are the same things, right, drilled into humans. There's three things that humans are, are engineered to care about, and that is survival and, and danger, right? And they kind of go hand in hand. And survival goes into things like sex and food and other things. So if you can tie to any of those, you're good. So you can't go down to the lunchroom, right, and get them to do things because that's tied to food. But what you can do is do um, an assessment uh, for security and for compliance and say, all right, we know these things exist in the world. There's compliances, and this is why it means something to us. If we're not compliant, it's probably really hard for us to find if we're compliant, right? So you, you use that as your catalyst to say, okay, we know these things exist in the world that people say are good practice. How well did we do? Oh, but, we couldn't on. actually measure it. But then th this goes into, okay, then governance is there for fear, which is true because we need that, right? We do need to have, uh, deal with, we don't want to get fined and all that stuff. But then that's what we, that I, like I, I, I've been calling it the, the negative kind of treating data governance time from that negative scary, like, oh, we, mm -hmm. like. Or the defensive. Right, right. That, the, the, the defensive, thank you, thank you. It's like, I'm, why do we have brakes in the car is so the car can go slower, right? That's that mindset. Well, no. So what's the other, can you frame this more in the positive of, oh, the brakes are there so they can help us go faster safely? Yeah, so I, I completely agree with you. So I do usually start with that because it gets their attention. It's not okay. the whole story, it's to get their yeah. attention. So once you start to say, yes, this is, this is something that we need to look at, here are some things that, that we can do with it. What I usually then do is that setup that I just described where we say, okay, well, there's enhancements, right? As soon as you, in my career, at least, when you say, oh, we're going to make an enhancement, everyone's like, we got to fix the problems that we already have. Not realizing that 
they might be, um, their data is like a Ferrari, right? The body of one, but they've got no offense to Ford drivers, but they have the motor of a Ford truck inside of it. They don't realize that, right? They're just doing whatever they thought they were doing. So as soon as you get their attention, that's where you can say, okay, let's, let me do an experiment with you. Here's an enhancement that we can do so that people are more productive, right? So how, how can people actually find something? I've done a lot of work with R&D and people that are doing research. If you don't find that standard, if you don't find that secret sauce to the next big invention and the other guys got it before you, right? It's, a, it's about speed. So if you can show something can get found quicker or more effectively, that is usually the way to get them over that hump because then they, their eyes are opened up. So that's how I usually do it. I, I start with the fear factor just because I personally have found that kind of kicks them in the butt. <laughs> it's like, oh, maybe we should listen to something here. And that gives you that in to then open up their eyes to all the other cool stuff that you can do. That makes a ton of sense. And that's very interesting. These kinds of exercises are bringing these people, people together, these sorts of knowledge therapy, data therapy sessions. You know, I, I think one thing I'm curious about, Ashley, is your perspective on, obviously, there's sort of some knowledge asymmetry there, right? You've got some people who are more experts in their various domains or fields. You've got end users that maybe aren't as much experts, but can really challenge some of the assumptions that these experts are making and can really put the rubber to the road. Um, you know, how do you think about how the, all that merges together and, and the, all these different players that are, that are, that are sort of happening? Well, not, not to belabor the card sorting piece, but, um, using methods like that, where you don't, uh, govern by committee because then the loudest person or the person that has the most power in the company wins. It doesn't matter what anyone else says. And you don't really want to put people into that situation because it's not comfortable. And so I, I usually do have these mechanisms like with those card sorts and with a lot of the other um, ways that we, we gather natural language. You can do it by just taking some of the reports that people do and do text mining off of it, right? So there's other ways to do it, not just card sorting, but you basically put that, that level of abstraction between the people and the stuff because as soon as you can identify the individual, then you start to get into, oh, well, that person's an expert. They're probably smarter about this than I am. They probably know better than I do. Really, but if you're using that same content, if you're still trying to get maybe a totally different activity done, but with the same data, it doesn't matter if you're the expert in that data, you have a need and you're just as valid as anybody else. And oftentimes it takes that data steward to empower those people to feel like they can actually step up and talk about, well, this is kind of what I wish I could have, but I don't want to step on their toes, right? Well, you're not stepping on their toes because nobody knows who's talking to me, right? Yeah. You're kind of the go-between. No, th that's such a cool uh, parallel to, uh, you know, there's this bigger, pro uh, you know, idea that Juan, you know, we've mentioned around knowledge science, and, you know, we've talked about in the past around data product management, even this idea of the card uh, project, not to continue to belabor, but like, like, you know, obviously I come from the product management side and, you know, I, one of the reasons for those in the audience who don't really know about these card exercises from an agile product management side is that you may have a bunch of engineers around the table and, and you say, well, how big is this, right? You're doing like story pointing or something like that. And, uh, and somebody might say, oh, I think this is a three, right? And then somebody else might be like, well, I think this is an eight, 
right? And then you get to have these interesting conversations about, well, why do you think it's an eight? Well, I'm considering all this to be in scope. And the three person is like, well, you know, I'm, I'm better at this. It's like, oh, okay. Well, you, you don't want to take into account why you're better at this, right? Um, it's interesting. It's all, it's all about the conversations, right? It's all about the, yeah, the information going back and forth. That's the interesting thing though. So with this approach where you kind of make that, that level of abstraction, you still have those conversations, but you do it after that aggregation has been been done, right? So in your case, all, all the developers are giving me a three, a four, whatever it is, and they give it to you. They don't really know who is doing what. And then when you see that, okay, a predominant amount of people are giving threes and not, you know, like ones, then you you can go out and, and kind of be that midi, uh, mitigation piece between the groups. So it's no longer that individual. That's the big part that I always try to keep in mind is as soon as you start to zero in on an individual at a decision-making point, when you are trying to make a decision as a group, if you're doing something with agile, it, you're really singling that person out. You're not giving them the chance to find their, their group, right. That kind of feels the same way they do and kind of shares those, those knowledge pieces with each other. That's kind of like put a lid on it because, Oh no, somebody else put a four on something. So I do like to to get all of that data in, but then you have the conversations after the fact. So um, my other famous phrase, how do you not boil the ocean? How do you avoid boiling the ocean on this? So I, and going back to like, like how, how can we be agile? Like how, what, in your experience, how, how, how have you done it? Yeah, so I, I've worked in Agile my whole life. So usually what I do is I find what is the, the biggest, baddest epic that's going. Um, or the biggest, baddest, you know, feature or capability, however you have your agile. I use safe, but, you know, not everybody uses safe. And so I look at that as the catalyst because the Epic also has money associated with it, time, resources. So you can say, ah, this is ripe for us to do something here. And again, that doesn't mean that's where you stop. That just means it's the, the toehold, right? And when you're making sure that you don't boil the ocean, you take that epic, which is already bounded context, right? And then you can dig into, oh, and now there's bounded context features. Let's look at those features and understand when people are working on anything in that feature, how do they find that data? Who, how do they know who's working with you know, the employee files? And then that's where you start. And then you kind of build out from there. It's the ripple effect. That's super smart. To take to to basically leverage the existing uh, backlog uh, mm -hmm. of whatever, let it be software development because people need to go figure out data to go yep. put into the, the whatever application they're creating, right? And if you have a backlog of analytics, definitely go look at that one. And yep. you can even and, use domain modeling if you do domain modeling where you work. You could use that as the catalyst to do this. Yeah, that's that a great idea. Uh, my my brain is spinning on a lot of this now. <laughs> No, no, because I'm like, oh, this is because I, I mean, I've been working on methodologies and, I, and for me, my methodology is like, let's come up with the questions that yeah. so you, you want to be able to go focus on whatever you're building, right? What data, the, the, the knowledge up that you're building, whatever, it must be there to go build, to go answer a particular business question. Mm -hmm. And we start doing, we iterate on that business question. Mm -hmm. And then the question is, well, how do you come up with those business questions? So my answer for that has always been, usually there's you people know what are the business questions that they get multiple answers for the same question. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so usually start with those, right. Or, or the ones that are just 
are critical. They just take too much time to get answered. Like I can only get an answer to this question every week because I got to pull data here. I got to do data here. I did all this money while munging. And it's like, if I could only get this data once one every day, right? Yep, so yep. you start with those and you literally, now you, that's how you make it something smaller and then prioritize out of that and literally start with question number one. And so, so I'm now going to like that, right? So using that agile approach, right? I, you use some tool to do agile, right? Like to put your stories in and all of that. We use, I can't remember what we use, uh, <laughs> but I, myself and the folks that are working on um, BI at EBSCO, we actually have a, a, a custom field in each of the features that says, what are the main business questions you have? And that's where we get those questions, right? So then we look across the board because we can aggregate them all because it's in um, a, a controlled field and we can see, oh, here are all the questions that everybody that's working on UI, because there's a million UIs at, at EBSCO that we're working on. We, do they all have the same needs? Oh, that's good to know. Maybe we should work on that. So we are using that kind of approach. I think then I want to go add another field is, okay, what's the business question is, what's the data that you would need? Mm -hmm. And don't even point to me. It's like, oh, I would love data about topic X or Y, right? Maybe that'd be another way to go kind of crowdsource and catalog the needs that people will have. Yeah, I love that. I think most of the time, uh, the folks that I've worked with, not just where I'm at now, but in previous roles, they don't often know what the name of the place is. They just say, I used, I used the spreadsheet that everybody else uses. This is the title of that spreadsheet. They don't really know. They don't realize that the spreadsheet's not the data. That's, <laughs> that's just where people put the data for you to work on. Yeah, totally. Uh, I'm getting horror stories just thinking about that stuff. Getting the you, you have your, your catalog, your your cataloging based on the spreadsheet names and the and and it's, oh, uh, it's version yeah. one and one point one and then and then it's by the email. It's like oh, remember it's the email on this date and but then they have so many threads in the email, right? Like oh oh my god. Oh and and yeah, I haven't read. There's some kind of um, auto scripting and someone accidentally puts an extra return in and deletes everything. Um, that was something I was working for a nonprofit very early in my career. And, um, we had scripting that was automatically grabbing things from FTP sites from, um, it was a journal publisher. So they were getting things from the editors and somehow they, they put an extra return into the query instead of writing it overwrote everything. And so basically they overwrote an entire database of journal content that we had with only one article. Thankfully, we backed everything up before that. So we only lost like a day's worth of work, but it was like, wait, how does that happen? That's what happens when you have too many people, <laughs> too many well, manual processes. I just want to bring up, so Mike, Mike Terry just said in the chat, awesome, I love this. Something else we need to go add kind of on, on, on the catalog is what action will, will you take based on this answer? And that can also help clarify the business questions. Yeah, it's kind of the why, right? Like, wh yeah. why? So what? Yeah. So what? So what do you want to do with this? Yeah. I think that's a great way to help people understand what else. It's a it's a learning opportunity. What else is out there that could answer that question? And maybe it would answer it faster, quicker, more efficiently, something like that. So, so another question I have is, um, this is going to start, I'm going to start asking people, every guest now this question, which is, um, what is your, how would you create your ideal team, the, the data team, or what, who, are, who are the people, what are their roles, who do they report to, how do they talk to, what, what is that, and, or what, it, what should it be? Well, one thing I've always found helpful, every 
place that I've worked at is a, a legacy company. They've been around for a while. And um, you always want to at least temporarily have the person that knows where all the skeletons are on the team. because they're Just temporarily? Be- well, yeah, because <laughs> normally um, those folks are also pretty um, adamant about how things are. And I do like to make sure that when we are starting a data governance, taxonomy, ontology, knowledge graph project, that we have people that really understand the, the problem space, but also have an open mind. Because oftentimes, especially with knowledge graph, it's, eh, I could, I could do that in a relational days. Why do we even need this thing? I, I once had some, uh, an engineer describe this to me. They were like, look, you're talking about this knowledge graph thing. It's like saying that you're trying to put this beautiful uh, balcony on, you know, a shack of a house. And I'm like, wait a minute, that's just, that's just not the right way to think about this. Um, so oftentimes you want to make sure that you have the people on the team to, to kind of get you started and then um, go away for a moment from, from what they're doing, kind of come up with a strategy and then come back because then you have to win hearts and minds oftentimes. Yeah. Now, so just to kind of wrap us up here before we go into takeaways, Ashley, how does Knowledge Graph fit into all of this? How, do, how, does, how does that tie in? Glad you asked. Uh, <laughs> that's my favorite topic. <laughs> um, so just as a very, because re- I know a lot of times when people talk about Knowledge Graph, it's like very lofty, big, big ideas. Um, very specific to what we're talking about here. I'll be very specific. When you are creating that bridge, that knowledge bridge between the controlled terms that you have on your content and that natural language of your users, a knowledge graph makes connections, right? And so that is how I would use a knowledge graph in that space. And then because it's already um, built for those relations, you can query it really quickly. You can do really amazing things in your search engine on the back end with a knowledge graph. Um, if you're using elastic, especially. So that is a, a very real application of knowledge graph. And I think it's one of the most powerful use cases for it. I'm, uh, awesome. I'm going to make sure that I'm going to point that last 30 seconds. And when people ask, so what is a knowledge graph? There it is. I love that. Thank you. You have your clip. We got the perfect. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> well, let, we always like to wrap up with some uh, takeaways. So Tim, Tim, what are, what, what are our takeaways here? I've been, you go first. Yeah, sure. Uh, so, I mean, there was a lot there and I'm, I'm, man, I'm, I'm even thinking now how I can incorporate this into some of the conversations I'm having with some, some different co- prospects and customers. So the two takeaways I'll mention is first of all, this idea that, you know, you get, you get this 40% more efficiency and satisfaction when you're engaging with the sort of the end users and, and getting their natural language infused and, that's huge. That is a huge mm-hmm. difference and a huge impact maker and really validates this sort of data product management or, or, or sort of uh, knowledge science approach to, to, to conducting this therapy, therapy and selection. By the way, that actually, that 40% number you said, where does mm-hmm. that, your, your internal experiments that you've done or where does that come from? Yeah, a whole PhD worth. Okay, so I guess we got to go look at your PhD. <laughs> that's, that's a big deal. We, we just got the spark nuts today. So I appreciate that. There you go. <laughs> and then uh, the other takeaway for me would be um, this idea that, um, you know, you, you're taking a qualitative approach to get a lot of information, but you can be quantitative about how you look at that, right? I love the idea of categorizing in certain taxonomies, putting that in a, in a tool or something that allows you to analyze it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it makes a ton of sense to me. Very exciting. Cool. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna piggyback on that last part. You said the quantitative and qualitative. I think 
that is already evidence that this is the type of knowledge science work. And I'm, and I'm deliberately using the word science because you're talking, I mean, we're talking about, we got to go run experiments. Like you said, let's go run the experiment and see what the executives are going to think about it. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and pe- right. People are going to get surprised about it. They're, they're, there's unknowns and you're going to go show them. We need to turn those unknowns into knowns. And we, th- I mean, we talked about techniques like card sorting, like these are the things that, somebody needs to do it. And I don't think a data scientist is doing that. I don't think a data engineer is doing that. That's what the knowledge scientists should be doing. Um, so again, we're just truly kind of people, this is the, this is the next thing. I definitely, the data scientist is the 2010s. And I think the data, the knowledge scientist is the 2020s. So, and then I, I'm, I'm really like this idea of thinking about survival and danger, right? And those are your triggers to realize that, uh, you need a data therapy. And sometimes the, the fear, right? The, that, that's the attention grabber. Break the ice with that. Mm-hmm. And that's how you can start transitioning to other things that can be considered like enhancements and enablements. So let's turn fear into opportunity, right? There you go. Perfect. Right. Yeah. So Ashley, thank you so much. Final question. I'll put you on the spot because we did not prepare you for this one. <laughs> Great. Who should we invite next? Oh, uh, you know what? There's... And I can't remember his last name. I think it's Fabio Avarez. I doubt you could get him because he's pretty um, popular. He does a lot on data mesh and and ontologies and knowledge graph. Love his writings on this. Uh, so if you can get him, I would be definitely in the audience. He's he's is, is he's posts a lot on LinkedIn and he's from Mexico. And medium he's Mex- and, and medium. He's he's Mexican, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. I think I've seen him a lot of stuff. Yeah, I agree. Okay, cool. Great. That's awesome. Well, now that you said that we might have trouble getting him, challenge accepted. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I hope you do. He's great. Fabio, if you're out there, we're coming for you. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, Ashley, cheers. Thank you so much for everything. Love the conversation. Cheers. Thank you. you. Next week. Next week, we have John Looker. We're going to talk about insurance. <laughs>